Hi everyone, uh, my name is uh, Tasso Rima. I am the CEO and founder of Apirinex, uh, and here to talk about our developments in the titanium supply chain, both on the titanium metal side, but uh, with our scoping study on the titanium mineral side of the business as well today. Tasso, nice to see you again. Uh, we spoke about six months ago, and we we tried to speak two months ago, but you were running around the the, the country, and we didn't quite um, make it. Um, in the last six months, there have been a huge amount of developments. Um, do you want to just kind of recap with your kind of the, the key milestones that you've met in the last six months? That'd be really useful. Yeah, over the last six months, we've made a, a lot of progress across um, both sides of our business uh, in an effort to uh, to reshore the titanium supply chain from end-to-end, -end, from ore to metal. We have uh, been developing our titanium minerals business, which is our Titan project in West Tennessee. Uh, it's a large scale, it's the largest titanium uh, mineral resource in North America. It has a significant endowment of rare earth uh, within it as well. And we completed a scoping study uh, on the Titan project recently. It was recently released probably about a month ago. Um, and we've continue to progress that. We have a uh, mineral demonstration facility, which is essentially a part of facility being developed down there. We can talk about that as well. Um, but then on the titanium metal side of the business, we've significantly advanced the production of our titanium metal powders. Eventually, we will produce titanium metal powders from the titanium minerals coming from the Titan project. But today, we produce titanium metal powders from scrap. We are the only company in the world which can produce a 100% titanium metal powder that is 100% from a recycled product. Uh, and we've been ramping up that and we have a significant amount of customer integration and interaction around uh, that part of our business. So a lot going on, a lot to happen in the next, uh, throughout the rest of the year. And we're really excited about um, the rest of 2022. When I um, wanted to get in contact with you six weeks ago, it was about <laughs> or, um, a month ago. It was the, it was to discuss the scoping study because that had just come out. So we we I think it was published on the last day of June, and you put out mm -hmm. a presentation in the first week of July. And mm -hmm. here we are, um, as you say, about a month later. Um, <clears throat> now, just I'm 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 just if we can just focus on the uh, on the scoping study for now we'll cross over to the metal side Absolutely. of the business but uh, let's let's deal with um simple chunks um yeah. or uh, you know do things one at a time so the scoping study um uh in the in Canada or the US it would be called a preliminary economic analysis a PEA it chucked out a pretty punchy NPV number NPV8 of um 692 million at a mm -hmm. 40% IRR Mm -hmm. um and the capex was 237 million dollars mm -hmm. for over um you know to to kickstart a 25 year mine life yes um the the highlights that you kind of talk about are the fact that the npv is almost three times the size of the 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 capex can i just ask when it came to getting that capex figure how um how difficult was it Given the inflationary environment, the way that prices were moving around, you know, what was the what was the process that gave you the confidence to put in ink a capex figure? So uh, it's it's a good question, Merlin. Um, so for us, uh, we have uh, in our team people that build a lot of operations here. So our incoming chief operating officer, Scott Sparks, who I've dealt with um, in all my career, um, going back to the coal industry. Um, he actually builds projects um, and him, his team, uh, minerals technologies on the ground who have operations and are building mine right now. 
Well, we went direct to the source. So this wasn't going to a database and, and pulling up numbers. This was actually going and, and getting uh, quotes for all, you know, most of the major equipment, good budgetary estimates in this environment. So this is up-to-date budgetary um, estimates of, of what we expect uh, the capital to be. Um, so, you know, we did see uh, inflationary pressures, uh, but I think it, for us, uh, we didn't see it as much. It's not a billion-dollar project. Um, there's a lot of construction labour on the ground. Uh, there's there's structural steel there, but there's not as much as you would uh, you would think in say some other projects. Uh, so we're very confident in that um, in that number. Um, a mineral processing plant's a relatively simple thing, isn't it? Because it can be separated on gravity. Yeah, it's it's very simple. So we we put in a thirty percent contingency into that that capital number includes a thirty percent contingency. Uh, and quite a bit there for EPCM as well. Um, so the actual mechanical equipment, the actual erection, the actual structural steel and all that across both the wet concentration plant and the dry mineral separation plant is not not that large. Um, so And it's quite simple. You're talking about gravity separation, so you're essentially pumps and spirals, um, so you can get the, you know, the slurry up to the top of the spirals and allow the gravity to just do its work to separate out the heavy minerals from from the light minerals and then in the uh mineral separation plant you've mainly got just uh uh magnetic electromagnetic and electrostatic equipment you don't really have you know big vats for leaching or or any yeah. uh any materials or construction materials that are um, expensive, like you don't need to use any high corrosion resistant um, high nickel alloys or anything like that, which which would have driven the price up substantially if it if it was that if it was like that. It's about just just under ten million tons per annum, so it's not a, it's not a particularly huge throughput compared to other mineral sands uh, um, globally. It kind of it, it it fits into the into the spectrum. It's not an outlier. But at what the same the- time, Merlin, it still it still is a large. From the uh, from the products that we produce, um, it still is still is quite large because it is high grade, relatively high grade compared to new projects out there. So you compare us against, say, the Coburn deposit, which is an excellent deposit being built and is uh, going to be commissioned this year, over three percent in our operation. So although we are would be you know, half the size would be a you know similar sort of size in terms of mineral products, maybe a bit larger. What are the physical properties of your ore? Have you? I mean, are there clays in there? Are there lots of fines? Is it well? You know, the the, the test work you've done so far does it does it handle um, well? Handles uh, quite well. Uh, we actually can. You am I able to share a screen here? So yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, let me show you. So. We have actually built a little mineral demonstration plant here, and I'll uh, pull it up here for everyone. So this uh, this handles the fine clay. So we do have we have two uh, units within the McNary sand. We have an upper McNary and we have a lower McNary. In the upper McNary, we don't have much uh, much fines, much clays. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's probably around five percent, maybe less. Uh, in the lower McNary, you can have up to twenty percent fine material. Um, not an issue in this part of the world. We find uh, we have a lot of water uh, in this part of the world um, and we're able to, we built this little facility here probably two months ago um, to do our feasibility samples and we're actually adding a spiral separation 
uh, spiral circuit to this uh, this side of the the operation. So this mineral demonstration facility was built to help us um, progress the development of the project, but also to show the community that it's just water and gravity that does the job. But we haven't found any issues with uh, with the clays. There's been operations. Our, our Lucas operations in Virginia had thirty percent clays in them. Um, I'm not too sure how much clays were in the operations in Georgia uh, and Florida, but they're high as well. Um, so it's, it's not uncommon for North American-style deposits to have some clays in it. We have not seen any issues from our separation uh, out here because of clays. But will the mining be conventional mining or will it be a hydraulic mining? No, we'll go conventional mining out here. What we showed and what we uh, targeted in the scoping study was or what we assumed in the scoping study was uh, truck and shovel with um, with mobile mining units. So the mobile mining units, similar to what uh, is used by Camus operations in Florida and Georgia, would move along um, as the uh, operation progresses uh, and would slurry uh, the, the ore and send it to the wet concentration plant. We will look at um, uh, those trap uh, in and then slurry to the wet concentration plant as part of the pre-feasibility study um, to look at and, and do a bit of a trade-off there. Uh, it could be either or. So so dozer trap would be that you would shovel into a... Um, Push some into kind a of trap, you know, uh, maybe we might. And then from there, from we would then um, put it into slurry um, and then uh, send it off to the pump it out into the wet concentration plant for, for and and operation. And those those options can be reviewed during the pre-feasibility stage. Which is yeah, sorry, Merlin, we're actually reviewing a, a range of options right now um, ahead of uh, going straight into pre-fees. So we've got our pre-fees ready to go, uh, but we've stopped uh, right now and haven't stopped. We've paused from progressing to the pre-fees to evaluate, evaluate a few things. Uh, size, so we went large to showcase how big this could be initially. Um, and mind you, we could potentially build a few of these. Uh, uh, we could see a few of these styles of operations throughout West Tennessee. I'll just bring up one other thing for you here. Because, your, your, because your, your initial plan is on 10% or 5% of the resource, whatever it is. Yeah, it's on, it's on about 30, 40% of where we are. Uh, so this is, this is Mount Canary Sand throughout West Tennessee. These are our properties, and we've drilled all throughout here and continue to see uh, the, the similar sort of concentrations of heavy mineral sands. We continue to pick up land throughout here and throughout here. But eventually, over the next, say, decade, you could have an operation here, you could have an operation here. There's definitely an operation in here and here for sure. And then out here, we've been getting good grades and continue to pick up some land. So you could see one, two, three at least three, if not four, operations of that scale out here, in my opinion. Um, but we've got to do the work to, uh, to, to see that. But it's, um, it's looking very positive. The other thing we've stopped and paused that as well, Merlin, is, you know, show the 10 million tonnes, but we could start off smaller um, to yeah. get going. Uh, we, we, th we think there's a couple of very, really positive things there. We can move through permitting quick, with a smaller operation or, or faster um, and showcase to the community that this can be a sustainable operation with the active reclamation and rehabilitation behind us. 
um, and we can get our product out to market quicker and um, and for lower capital cost. So we're evaluating that, and at that same time, we're evaluating uh, the dozer trap uh, operations. So we will, as we move into pre-fees, we, that evaluation will, will complete in the next, it's an internal evaluation, but it will complete in the next probably month or month and a half, and um, we will then move into our pre-feasibility study. Well, traditionally, a pre-feasibility study is, is the time when you run with a series of different scenarios and it's the <clears throat> it's the kind of the maturation of your ideas, both at this um, so kind of combination of strategic but from the board level with the input from yeah. um, senior executives, but also the kind of the cost implications, the NPV options you've got, and it's the, it's where those two meet, and you feel you've got the optimal uh, strategic approach along with the kind of the most robust set of numbers, which isn't always the highest NPV, but it can be you know yeah. as long as it, it but um, as long as it you know, gets out there now yeah. Now, I, I do think the MPV will improve because there's some uh, projects or, or some opportunities we're looking at now which can significantly improve MPV, especially, and will will be coming out to the market uh, with that in, in the near term on the mineral side of the business. I think we've also got opportunities on the rare earth side because we are, you know, we produce almost a million electric vehicles worth of NDPR a year from this operation, we've already seen interest from the automotive companies in the US for something like this. And we have the relationship with energy fuels, which means we can uh, separate and develop a full American rare earth oxide supply chain with relatively low capital. We wouldn't have to put in any more capital than that. But for us as well, I'll go back to my team has built operations uh, and builds operations right now. My uh, chief operating officer and, and and the key part people within my team, Jonathan Lord, my VP of uh, of geology and land, we all came out, or they all came out of the sector of building and operating uh, operations. So we sort of know where we want to go, but the idea of uh, developing a more thorough uh, initial phase or initial stage and then stepping it up and putting that into the pre-fees um, earlier on was really more got to do with allowing us to apply and go for permits early. We have a very good relationship mm-hmm. with uh, the state government and the communities at the moment, very strong relationship with the communities. Um, and uh, we think that there's an opportunity. We have done already our baseline studies and our work, um, our monitor- groundwater monitoring, um, our uh, jurisdictional determination of where our streams and wetlands are in the area. And so we um, we think we can move forward with a with an application for a permit this year. Uh, and what we've seen, if we stay within the state mining permit process, we've seen the opportunity to um, uh, that publicly. What's what was uh, issued in the last since say twenty twenty one in Tennessee, there was about seventeen state mining permits issued, which are similar to what we're going for mm-hmm. or what we would need. Uh, and the average issuance um, on those permits was about 87 days. So so we would like to go in this year, uh, at least for that initial operation, uh, smaller, more capital efficient, um, uh, and uh, go in for those permits early um, this year. What level do you have to kind of get under to be still qualify under a state uh, permit and, and when does it become a federal permit or a, uh, well, a, different, techni- a, different, a, a different permit yeah technically uh it's 
technically it's your interaction with uh, federal waterways. Well, there's a few federal nexuses. There's um, main main one is uh, streams and wetlands, streams, waterways, wetlands, anything to do with uh, with rivers or waters or anything. So we stay well away from any of those. Stay um, and we're planning operations to have the right buffer zones around any minor streams we see on our on our um, properties. It's just we're so big and this area is so big that there's just no need to um, to affect any of them. So we're just going to stay away from them, even though it cuts the resource out a little bit and you're, you're not losing much of the resource. So we can stay away from streams and wetlands. That straight, stays away from a, ne- from, a, from a federal nexus. The other side is air, you know, the Clean Air Act. Um, and, you know, because we're not a chemical operation, we're not a refinery or anything like that, we stay away from that as well. We don't have uh, – we're essentially a, a mining operation. It's wet sand. There's no real uh, uh, respirable silica in the air because it's all wet. So you stay away from – and you stay well under the thresholds. It's not a uh, large – smelter or, or refinery so staying away from those two areas streams and wetlands and any major impacts to to air quality um keeps you within the sort of state mainly within yeah. the permitting process yeah. and administered by the state and so then it's all about your relationship with the community uh your relationship with uh the locals out there i'm you know personal friends with a lot of, of the different community members out there people can see on nbc4 we were featured just uh last Wednesday uh, in Tennessee, you know, I'm friends with the uh, assistant uh, deputy within one of the uh, states, um, no, deputy assistant commissioner uh, within uh, agriculture and natural resources. And, you know, it's it's a good, we have a good relationship. Doesn't mean we can do what we want. It just means we're, means actually we need to, we need to prove that what we've said we're going to do, we're going to do, um, because yep. that's what locals are expecting of us. I'm a great fan of, doing things right from the beginning you know spending your time to get the the optimum approach and to kind of do your homework and you've been talking about various scoping sides of things and also talking with energy fuels about your your output um you know your product stream i've also seen in one of your presentations you've got kind of um, pre-feasibility study this year and uh next year aiming to do the feasibility study are you are you kind of hung up about those timetables, or are you kind of more focused about um, making sure that you've got the right relationships and the right agreements with the offtake partners? You know, how, 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 what's the interaction between those those two uh, competing elements? Yeah, I, it's a good question. Um, Pre feasibility study will be next year, and we'll aim to still have feasibility complete next year. In the recent presentation, we were talking around first or second quarter for pre fees and fees by the end of uh, next year. The, the main thing in my mind is be, to be construction ready uh, next year, sometime next year. Yeah. And okay. construction ready means engineering studies complete and permitting uh, the majority, the major permits in place. So that's why for me, typically in a project, as you know, um, the major um, critical part or the critical path in those timelines is typically your test work and your permits. So my focus has been to hit those because then the engineering studies, while it's not fat complete, just you know you still got to do them. It is, it is, it is almost sort of fat complete because once you have your test work done, you have your flow sheets done, um, then just doing the engineering work around where you're going to put it, how much it's going to cost, it's just time. 
But what you're typically waiting for is your hydrogeological studies, your geotechnical studies, your and especially your process or metallurgical uh, test work. So we've uh, already initiated a lot of those and we're into uh, well advanced on a lot of those, especially on our process or metallurgical uh, studies. We're at the feasibility level already and we expect to have feasibility level metallurgical tests were complete well before the end of the year by by October. And then when we turn to the other part um, here in this, the other major timeline, it's typically permits. Here in the United States, it, there's no real concept of scoping pre-fees fees. They, they don't really, if if you look at, say, Martin Marietta, for instance, which mines a ton of aggregate, you know, hundreds of millions of tons of aggregate and is always building new operations every year, they never go through they they go through internal um studies engineering studies but the concept of what we have in a, in say australia or canada they don't have they go in and they do the engineering studies and permanent operation um so you can it's all about do you have enough data there and do you have enough planning done to submit permits and do you have the land uh, we have uh, we're getting that planning done to submit permits and we've got the land that planning does typically does not need to be to a feasibility level. It needs to be to a level where you can understand what your impacts are going to be in the region. And we already understand that, both from the work we've done, the feasibility work we've done, the test work we've done, and then, of course, the experience that the team has. So hitting those mm. two things, the major test work campaigns we need to do and the major um, uh, permitting um, process we need to go through uh, and getting that in and progressing uh, as soon as possible, I think is is the major typical hang-ups you see on projects. And if we can get to, say, you know, first, second, third quarter next year and have all that complete, then finishing the feasibility study is finishing the feasibility study. I think the, the, the key element in all of that is um, keeping the scope the same. So I think the, the, the timelines run out when scopes change mid-engineering process which is kind of it feeds back into um when you were talking about permitting you said if you've got the data if you've got enough data then the permitting process mm -hmm. can run smoothly and if you've got the metallurgical test work then the engineering can run smoothly it's all about not changing the scope or having to repeat work because you didn't have enough data or we didn't have enough test work or you 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 change the the, the layout of the plant yeah. or the order of the development schedule late in the stage and that's when the timelines can compound so it's it's all about only starting the final stage when you know that that's actually what you're going to study and you've got the information to yeah. dot the i's and the, and the t's on it cross the t's on it and for us that's why you know we're doing we've taken a pause to to get that really down pat and look at what ahead of um going to pre-fees what a capital number would look like for a smaller operation we also, knowing that uh, process metallurgical test work and, and the quality of our product is hugely important. That's why we really took the last year or year and a half to get that right with Minerals Technologies. And we brought in some experts from industry to assist us with that. So we have a very good idea of uh, what, uh, what our product is. And we've already, as you see, we've already secured MOUs with, across all yeah. our products. And um, and then from a operation standpoint, we feel very comfortable now as we're getting into it. What this operation should probably start out to be both capital efficient to get us going, 
um, and uh, to minimise, um, you know, future potential uh, risks uh, to both the project and, and to shareholders as well. I think the plan Plus we it- have is is going to be is going to be capital efficient and it's going to be um, is going to surprise the market to the upside. Well, I hope so. Plus- Plus, you've got that, that lovely comparable that you've put in a, a bit of your marketing material in the presentations and things. You know, you've got your your annual average EBITDA of whatever it is, 130 yeah. million, and the market, million, yeah. Yeah. 117 million, and then then you've got the 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 valuation of um, MP minerals, uh, MP materials. Um, yeah, they're up at yeah. what, what are they up at? Six point eight billion dollars yeah. at the moment, and their and their yeah. EBITDA is what 80, 90 million. Yeah, you got to also remember, you know, for us, it's it's a relatively simple operation so it's it, unlike you know we do we, we are lucky we have it easier because this is gravity concentration and this is mineral separation physical mineral separation there's no leaching here there's no there's no unknowns this is uh well the risks are, are far less than say other ore bodies this is you know mother nature has already done its work to concentrate and also physically separate out the, the individual grains of the different minerals so we're not having to do test work around you know acids or or, or you know alkaline leach or or anything like that that some of these other um some of these other commodities like lithium for instance with clays and all that you really do need to go through a long drawn out process to understand how you're going to do it, and to minimise um, your uh, your risks there. Whereas this is very simple. It can be, as we hope to show in the pre-feasibility study, can be extremely capital efficient, um, and uh, and the technical risks are, are very low. Now you've got um, five products coming out of this. You've got um, mm-hmm. a rare earth element concentrate. You've yes. got. Um, just under 5,000 tonnes of that. You've got some rutile, some premium zircon, some zircon concentrate, and some ilmenite. The rutile and the ilmenite, that all separates under gravity. Does the zircon, can you talk, talk to me, tell me about the difference between the, the, the premium zircon and the and the zircon concentrate? And the, the, is, the electric, is, is the electromagnetic plant, is that the trickiest part of the process? Yeah, so... In the mineral separation plant, you separate out using magnets, essentially, your rutile and your ilmenite, and then you use electrostatics to separate out. Um, in Very broadly, use electrostatics to separate out um, the zircon. Um, and so, you know, you can't – it's just how efficient you want to be um, in the plant. Um, and, you know, it's efficient to produce uh, a zircon – and then a zircon concentrate. And when you look at and you run the numbers, which will run again in the pre-fees, but you run the numbers, it makes sense to, you know, sell the zircon con into the international market and that amount of zircon and premium zircon. But that could change as, as prices for zircon change. I mean, we're using prices in our scoping study, which are probably half of what the spot price is today uh, for both titanium minerals and zircon minerals. So it makes sense to sort of separate that out. The important thing, though, I think, Merlin, is that your mineral separation plant is really for your titanium and your zircon minerals. Before you get to that point, you, like we say, we gravity separate, which is water and, and gravity, separates out the heavy minerals, so your, your 
uh, rare earth mineral concentrate and your titanium and zircon minerals. And then you put all the sand back in. You then take that heavy mineral concentrate and before you even have to bring it to the wet separate bring it to the mineral separation plant, you can float off your monazite and xenotime, so your rare earth minerals, and we've yep. got both. We don't just have the light rare earths, we have the heavy rare earths because we have a lot of xenotime in here. And you can float that off with very high efficiencies from what we've seen already from our test work. And we can we continue to do test work with minerals technologies in, uh, in Australia as we speak, and we're actually going to have a small flotation plant in our mineral separation in our mineral demonstration facility on site installed in the next few months but uh, you can float that off and then you can have this clean concentrate of titanium and zircon minerals that then can either you can either you could sell that if you wanted to before you build a full mineral separation facility yeah yeah and that's that there's quite a large international market for that there's you know there's plants in the US um, which have got underutilized capacity for mineral separation. Um, and there's plants, you know, in Southeast Asia, which which have the same as well, not just China, but like Vietnam and Malaysia as well. So this ore and what we have is amenable to a, a lot of different options that if you go one route, it doesn't cut you off from adding later. Like we could go just gravity concentration and flotation, sell the, the titanium and zircon concentrate, have that rare earth mineral concentrate, which today makes up 45% of our revenues, mm. reshore the rare earth supply chain in North America with uh, energy fuels and sell the titanium and mineral zircon concentrate for the first few years before building the full mineral separation plant. Again, we can be smaller, more capital efficient. Uh, we can get you know into operations quicker, lower technical risk, uh, get through the permitting quicker as well that way. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of options here that if we take one route, doesn't cut us off from adding later, from being more modular later. Thank you. I yeah, yeah, it does. It makes sense. I understand the, the process much better now. Um, the, the the rare earth element, um, the, the, um, the, the monazite and the xenotine that goes off to energy fuels, does that... Get processed. Does do the rare earth oxides get separated in China, or is there a plan to get them separated in the US? So eventually, right now, what Energy Fuels does is they uh, they do the first part, which is the cracking and leaching, and they produce a uh, mixed rare earth carbonate that then is sent today. They take a little bit of monazite out of Georgia um, from Kamul's operations, and they're producing a rare earth carbonate today and shipping it. Uh, to a plant uh, owned by Neo Materials, uh, Canadian listed Neo Performance Materials, out in um, Estonia, and they do the separation there. Mark Chalmers, the CEO of Energy Fuels, who I talk to a lot, um, and we are progressing that MOU um, into a, a full scale, full blown agreement. Hopefully this year, um, uh, he has publicly talked about bringing separation capacity back home. Uh, he's working on um, his studies in engineering for uh, light and heavy rare earth separation here in America. In addition, you have MP materials who can who theoretically can take that rare earth carbonate once they they're building their separation capacity out again, looking to start it up. That's public, and then you also and they've been funded by the I think the DOD gave them money. 
um, thirty odd, or the federal government gave him thirty odd million dollars, and then another hundred and twenty million dollars actually went to Linus, and Linus in Texas is building out both the light and heavy rare earth separation capacity, and again can take that rare earth carbonate that's produced in energy fuels today into the Linus facility. But what I would say is that energy fuels publicly and when speaking with Mark Chalmers, they they will they see the value of doing the separation on site. They do uh, solvent extraction anyway as part of their plant in the uranium and vanadium to separate out uranium and vanadium. Um, so they have ex- a lot of experience there uh, and they've got a small pilot facility which does it. Um, and I, I anticipate that by the time we get up and running and supply product to them, that full separation will happen um, there. So you would have a supply chain of titanium mineral concentrate, uh, rare earth mineral concentrate, comes out of Tennessee, is shipped to energy fuels in southern Utah. Southern Utah does full separation of oxides, cracking, leaching, full separation of oxides. It's amazing, isn't it, that the kind of the, the IP and the technology just was kind of sucked into China and it just, the West <laughs> is having to re- rebuild its know-how. They're having to work out how to separate these, these, um, these elements, which are so physically and chemically similar to each other. There's a real art, There's an art to it. But, you know, what I would say is that Energy Fuels has, has been doing uh, uh, solvent extraction um, now at their pilot facility there for a while. Um, and I think they're well-versed in, in how to do it. And I, I think... I think you're going to see it happen in the next uh, few years. You're going to see full separation capacity happen and then scale up from there. Um, you know, I, I I think people, it it has been hard, but they've, they have the infrastructure there to do it. Uh, mm. and, and in addition, they have the will because, you know, the world's not being stopped yeah. out there. The, 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 the world needs it, but also yeah. with us, you've got a significant amount. Like we, there's, you know, 120,000 tonnes of defined rare earth minerals already within our deposit, and we, we're only scratching the surface of what's here in West Tennessee. I mean, yeah. as I showed you, there could be multiples, many multiples of that. So um, I think between us and and the uh, and West Tennessee and what we have at Titan having almost unlimited amounts of um, of rare earth minerals uh, and then what they have there with existing process capacity for cracking and leaching which is the, which is probably one of the hardest parts to both build because it's really expensive and permit that's already done that's already behind them that's a billion dollars already taken already out of the equation I think you have the pieces of the puzzle to bring home rare earth oxide supply a lot quicker than what any of the governments or any of the consumers like the large auto companies understand. Interesting. Talking about kind of onshore metals and uh, <laughs> we, we've, we've spoken, for, um, we've, we've had a good old session looking through the scoping study and, and the, the titanium yep. mineral side of the business. Um, and that was principally what I wanted to catch up on really was after the scoping study. That's, that was kind of the main bulk of it, but I can't help we can't leave without talking about the metal side of it, the um, the titanium printing, um, the the, the yeah. titan, um, titanium metal. Cool. Um, I see that you've got 
lots of traction in the kind of the media, um, mm-hmm. particularly in the US. I've, I've mm-hmm. read a bunch of articles, including one in the Wall Street Journal last week. Um, I noticed that your um, your ADR sponsor has just put out a kind of a change of ownership. So they've gone to just under 6% uh, ownership of your stock is now in the US, isn't it? And that's following on the back of, you've been listed what in the in the NASDAQ for six weeks now. So yeah. um, could, we just, could you just kind of, in in brief, tell me a little bit about the metal side of the business and the traction you're getting in the US. Yeah, the metal side of the business is 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 really exciting. I mean, people should get excited about Titan, and, and I think a lot of people do, knowing it's there. You know, the news media came out, NBC came out last week. It was great, and I think we're going to continue to see that. But on the metal side of the business, it's it's it more hits home because it's products. It's it's products that can be printed, you know, using advanced manufacturing methods, which everybody finds cool. You know, we make spherical titanium metal powders today from scrap. We're the only company in the world which makes a 100% recycled titanium metal product. Uh, and we're typically taking those powders and we have 3D printing machines um, at the University of Utah, uh, both Bionajet and now we have some laser bit powder fusion, um, small, you know, scale machines for prototyping. You know, we print stuff like we've got stuff like this that we print, Merlin. Like, have a look at that, these little things. We've got a whole bunch of stuff out here that we print um, just uh, for customer interaction. Um, And these are products that are, you know, instead of it being like a white powder or a black powder that goes into a, you know, like titanium minerals goes in, makes paint and pigment, you're so upstream you don't see your product on something. This is more we make a... We make a powder, we put it into a machine, we print a product, and that product is sold, or will be sold by a by a customer in in whether it's in an automotive OEM or whether it's in a is in a consumer goods or consumer electronics brand. So it's the exciting stuff that people can see. You know, us bringing down that cost of the titanium uh, metal significantly, especially on the spherical powder side, using this advanced manufacturing and starting to bring forth titanium metal into everyday products which people um which people use or, or a lot of people can see around them um is i think what excites people when we get into the details uh and excited willie she uh the professor at harvard who wrote about us in forbes uh, recently he calls this the bessemer moment uh, for titanium uh, akin to the bessemer moment in the steel industry in the late 1800s so i think that's where we get a lot of attention and that's where we as a company see some major catalysts around um, some large customers, strategic partners, whatever you want to call them, OEMs that are going to use our titanium metal products in, use our titanium metal in their products in the near future. And we hope to get those partnerships out soon. And uh, what, the what, what, what do you think, you, you say that could be a catalyst. I mean, because you've, you've announced that you're working with MRL, who's who's got a kind of relationship with the Department of Defense. Um, you've you've announced that you're working recently, just last a uh, couple of weeks ago, you spoke that you were working with um, Oak Ridge National Lab, which has got mm-hmm. ties to the Department of Energy or the Department of Defense. Department or, of Energy, yeah. Yeah. Is, is, is that enough? You know, the, the fact that you've got these kind of alliances with the, at the federal level, or are you looking at kind of offtake or, you know, when you, when you say kind of catalysts, um, what, what what do you what do you mean? Yeah, so I mean big partners, big OEMs, 
starting to use our titanium metal products in there, starting to use our titanium metal um, powders to make products that go into their right. into their products. Um, so our titanium metal powders to make parts that go into their products or components that go into okay. their products. So, yeah. you know, that's that's a big one because I think the Oak Ridge relationship is 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 fantastic. You know, we're going to develop new alloys for, for use in a range of applications and and where, you know, we we our process is unique and we can build or manufacture new alloys quickly and test new alloys very quickly uh, compared to the traditional process. On the MRL side, MRL, we're working with the US Navy to qualify flight critical components, um, and that's fantastic. But again, it's a qualification process for replacement components within the US Navy, um, and that's great. And I think there's there's going to be more of those government D, specifically DOD related opportunities that are going to come through but right now our fo- and that's great it's fantastic and there's especially with the recent uh, inflation reduction act that was um, that was just passed uh, yesterday there's going to be a lot of funding opportunities from the federal government and there has been for these for our type of technology which is sustainable um, emissions free um and can promote uh, American leadership in in manufacturing, um, but the the thing that I think is going to really excite people is to understand where titanium metal can be used. Look at your av- everyday products, which are now made of aluminum and stainless steel. If you look at the s- some of the small products and the handheld products and the products we wear, these can all be manufactured using our titanium metal powders going into some sort of advanced manufacturing process, whether it's metal injection molding or whether it's binder jet printing in the future, laser bit powder fusion uh, printing to make the same component that's right now in steel and aluminum to make that same component for sometimes lower cost. Um, but but in so titanium, more, which is li- lighter and stronger, which is lighter, stronger, considered a better metal, and it's more corrosion resistant, so it lasts longer. In titanium, if you put it in seawater, it would never corrode. You put stainless steel in seawater, eventually it's going to corrode. So mm-hmm. you know, it's. Uh, I think some of these major partnerships which come through can start setting the scene to a lot of people to understand. Okay, it's not just a pie in the sky. We are producing titanium metal powders today we are making stuff today uh using uh additive manufacturing typically in the future we'll, we can use other advanced manufacturing methods but typically additive or 3d printing as people call it and uh in the near future we can be selling and starting to disrupt um the metal sector by selling our titanium metal products into the sector will that be a catalyst for moving to a commercial facility away from the the kind of pilot scale uh, or are, yes. the, are, are you? So, so, what's the timeline and the, the plan for that commercial facility? We're going to put out some updates on our what we call our titanium demonstration facility, um, both on site selection and and engineering design and and work, uh, and also um, you know securing some of the key long lead time items. Uh, you know, the furnace, for instance, where the actual hammer process, hydrogen assisted magnesium thermal production process, actually happens. Uh, that's typically the longest lead time item. We've had some major advancements there. So, you know, we intend in the near future to not just help the market understand where which sectors we can really penetrate with our titanium metal powders and 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 make you know high quality low cost titanium metal parts, but also 
the timeline of of when we get out there. But it's it's soon. It's really really soon. Tesa, thank you very much. It's been a um, an informative session as always. Um, really always like really catching up with your news and uh, good luck ahead. Absolutely. Thanks very much, Merlin. Speak soon again.